we're, we're going through God's story and our story. And today we get to talk about the resurrection. Um, today, I want to hold two things together in tension. And, um, and I want to see if you feel that tension too, as I, as I hold these two things together. So one thing is a passage from the Bible, and the other thing is a newspaper article. So we'll hold that passage from the Bible and the newspaper article together. Let's see if you feel some tension. So first, uh, the, a vision about God's good future from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. And there'll be some parts in bold, and if you want to read that along with me when you get to that part. So, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he'll dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he was, who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Pretty great, right? All right, now the newspaper. So um, CBS recently had an article about how 8,022 people in Alameda County are homeless. And more than half of that number lives in Oakland. More than half. In the last two years, there has been a 43% increase in the number of homeless people who are living in Alameda County. And most of that uh, in the, uh, the, yeah, just to give you a sense for the numbers, in the last two years, Oakland's homeless population has gone from 2,761 people to 4,071 people. And most of those 4,071 people are actually from here. It's, it's not as if people are moving here from somewhere else because this is a good place to be homeless. Because there are certain places that are better to be homeless because of the services or how the city treats you and things like that. But that's actually not the case. Most people lived here. They didn't come from somewhere else. And how did they get to be homeless? Um, yes, for some, there is addiction at play in their life. Yes, for some, there's mental illness at play. But for others, at one point, they had housing. At one point, they had an apartment or some kind of situation, but with rising prices, they could no longer afford it, and so they're out on the streets, and they're living in a tent or in their car or camper van. You drive under almost any freeway overpass. I know you guys have seen this with your own eyes. Under almost any freeway overpass, and you cannot ignore what's happening everywhere. And if you felt like it was growing, uh, it's because that, that it very much is the case. So as, as Christians, what are we supposed to think about this? And more than just what are we supposed to think about this, what are we supposed to do about this? Do you feel some tension between the biblical picture of what was just described to us and, you know, God saying, I'm going to make all things new, and then what we see under the overpasses? Do you feel that tension? I do. The Bible that you hold in your hands, um, it, it tells about the end of the story with the return of King Jesus, and that's the future. But what, what, do we, what do we do about right now? Does, does our present matter to God? Just because we know how the story ends, that doesn't mean that the tension that we feel gets resolved and, oh, it's all just going to be okay. You, you look around and you're like, you, you get this sense like something's got to be done. This is, not, this is not okay. Just because I know how, where this is all going. The resurrection of Jesus 
that we're going to talk about this morning creates this future that we just read about a few moments ago. The resurrection of Jesus also heals regrets and pain from our past. But does the resurrection of Jesus have anything to say about our present? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So, um, and lately, um, I've been experimenting with different ways to make this time interactive and participatory. I think it's a lot more fun if we get to engage with each other and it's not just me talking the whole time. Um, so at some point, um, if you want to ask me a question, um, just shoot up your hand and I might finish the thought, uh, but then I'll, I'll call on you. And if that's not your style or that totally freaks you out, don't worry about it. Um, I'll also give us at least one chance uh, for us to talk in a, in a smaller group. Um, also, there's some note sheets in the back between the Bibles, and if you have a question that you would just love me to address at some point in a future Sunday, just write it down, and you could leave it at the table or give it to me or um, anything like that. Uh, I'd love to make sure that these, these things are really practical for where you're at. So, um, but overall, we've been moving through the big moments of the biblical story. We're, we're, we're looking at the big story so we can know what the story is so that we can also find our place in that story to go, okay, here's what God's done, and here we are now. God, what do you have for me to do in your story? And so today we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection is everything for Christians. Because without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. It just, there, there just wouldn't. Jesus would have either been forgotten or just faintly remembered in this long list of failed prophets if there had been no resurrection. But something happened. And within just a few weeks after his death, Jesus' followers, who had been all scared and freaked out, are now out in the streets boldly proclaiming the good news of his resurrection. Now, that's, no matter what day and age you live in, that's a huge claim for people to make, right? That somebody came back from the dead? That's, that's huge. That's strange. That's like, whoa, what are we talking about here? So, not surprisingly, there's been all kinds of arguments made where people are trying to explain away um, the resurrection story and, and what happened with Jesus' followers. Because we really don't like things that mess with our world. You know, we can escape for a little bit, a little bit with a movie or a Netflix series. If, you know, if we're talking about a zombie apocalypse or aliens or whatever, like, I can take that in like a small dose in a movie theater because then once the credits roll, I can move on with my life and go, oh, that was, that was a fun escape. But if you tell me that a resurrection has actually happened in the real world, well, then I've, I've got to deal with that. that. That changes things. And so what you and I have to understand about the first people to, to proclaim the resurrection is that these people were Jews. And that's really important because nobody else in the ancient world was even considering resurrection. It wasn't part of their worldview and belief system. This story of the resurrection could have only originated with the Jewish people because they were the only people who had any kind of openness to that, even just to that concept. Uh, but that makes it even more difficult because when you actually get into what did Jews actually believe about the resurrection, well, nobody was expecting what happened with Jesus with the resurrection of just one person. That was not on their radar. That was not how it worked for them. Their idea of resurrection was only part of this larger combination of a whole bunch of other things that were supposed to happen all at the same time. And so here's the Jewish resurrection checklist. Um, they, would, they expected to see that their Roman overlords would be defeated and that Israel, the kingship of Israel would be established over all of the nations. They expected that all the Jewish exiles who were living outside of the land would return. They were expecting the restoration of Jerusalem the removal of their corrupt leadership, 
the enthronement of a king who would come from King David's line, and the transformation and renewal of all creation, and then the resurrection of everyone. So you put all that together, and you can understand why in the Gospels it tells us that nobody went to the tomb after three days to check and see if Jesus had risen from the dead again. They don't have to. All they have to do is look out the window and go, oh, is everything exactly the same as it was yesterday? Yeah, it is. Okay, great. Obviously nothing changed. That would be like you and I looking out the window and going, are people still living under the freeway overpass? Oh, okay, cool. No, no need for me to check if the tomb is empty. It's just that, it's not just that no Jew would believe this. It's that no Jew could imagine something like this. You, you don't have a resurrection happening in the middle of an unchanged world. That just wasn't on their radar. So the only way for us to explain that this story originated with Jewish people is that something must have happened. Something had to have happened because it was so different than what they were expecting. But let's say that you have a skeptical friend when you're talking about your, 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 your belief in Jesus and his resurrection and you can't remember all that stuff that I just said to you. Let's, let's just say that that's the case. Um, here's what I think is the greatest proof of the resurrection. There is a book in your Bible called James. Are you familiar with James in the New Testament? So James is the brother of Jesus. He grew up with him. In the first line of his letter, James describes himself as James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Servant of the Lord Jesus. Does anybody in here have siblings? You grew up with them. You know what they're like behind closed doors. You've got some stories on them, yes? Let me ask you this. Knowing all that you know about them, what would it take for you to believe that your sibling is God? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, my brothers and sisters, I give you the greatest proof of the resurrection. James, the brother of Jesus, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the only way that we're going to be able to explain the uniquely Jewish origins of this resurrection story and the complete turnaround of Jesus' disciples, including his brother who grew up with him, something had to have happened. And if it did, if something really happened, then that changes everything. So we got to talk about what, what's different because of the resurrection. What does the resurrection show us? First of all, the resurrection is God's big yes to Jesus. Everything that Jesus said and did in the resurrection, God's backing him up. And I know um, it's popular to talk about doubting Thomas, um, but that, that guy, he's actually my hero. Um, and I actually don't think he's all that skeptical either. I think, I think that Thomas knows exactly what's going on, and that's why he's like, whoa, guys, pump the brakes on this whole resurrection thing, okay? Slow down. It's because he knows exactly what's going on. He knows what this means if this is true. Because if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then all of those mighty deeds and words that we talked about last week, all of those moments when Jesus was acting and speaking as if he was the living God walking among us, Israel's God on earth, then all of it's true. That's why when Jesus appears to Thomas, Thomas speaks the first truly con a Christian confession of who Jesus is. He kneels before him and he says, my Lord and my God. Why? Because he knows what this means. This is a Jew talking to a human being, my Lord and my God. 
No Jew is going to say that to a mere human being. So the resurrection is God's yes to Jesus. And Thomas is the first human to echo that yes. But there's more because Jesus comes back with a body. He's not a ghost. He, he, to prove to his disciples that he's not a ghost, he says, hey, you guys have anything here to eat? And he, there's a moment, I'm guessing, where he just eats it in front of him and there's this awkward pause because when he eats, the food doesn't fall through his ghost body down into his sandals. He, it, it's a real body. You, you and I have to hear that because the resurrection, it's not only God's yes to Jesus, it's God's yes to humanity. Our bodies really matter deeply to God. That's why Christians need to stop talking about saving souls as if only the soul matters and our bodies don't matter to God. You have to have a body if you're going to reflect God's image. You have to have a body if you're going to be fully human. The resurrection is God's affirmation of our bodies continuing on into the world to come, into God's good future. But there's more. If this body is physical, it also needs a physical place to exist. And so the resurrection is God's yes to creation. God is committed to his creation. What he creates, he redeems. So yes, there's brokenness in this world, but God's at work to redeem it. And Jesus's resurrection, it's like a sneak preview of what's in store for a renewed heavens and earth. And that new earth part um, can be kind of surprising for some Christians because of how they've been brought up to understand all this. New earth? I thought we were going to get out of this place. I thought we were going to jettison this place. I thought this whole thing was going to burn. Until you actually start to pay attention to what the Bible's been saying the whole time. We already learned that creation is God's temple, and um, God is committed to this place. But now, listen to these parts of the Bible that you're probably already familiar with. John 3, 16. For God so loved my soul that he gave his one and only son? No. For God so loved the cosmos, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Because creation is God's temple. Humans are the ones who reflect God's image within his temple. He cares deeply about this. We got to get this right. God loves his creation. Another text, when Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your kingdom go and take us with you. Is that what he teaches us to pray? No. But it's amazing how many Christians live their lives as if that's what Jesus taught us to pray. He says, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven's not the issue. Earth is. On earth, there's all other kinds of kingdoms at play. God's kingdom is not the one that's honored. On earth, there's all kinds of wills being done. God's will is not the one that's being followed, and so we're taught to pray into God's good future. God's kingdom is coming to this place. His will is going to be done in this place. We pray for that. We long for that. We hope for that. We know it's coming. Another text, Paul writes in Romans 8, creation groans waiting for its destruction? No, it's liberation. And then in Revelation, what do we read about heaven? The saints, you know, we, we, we get these pictures. What are we going to do in heaven? What are we going to do for all of eternity? And the pictures are like, we have halos and we play harps in heaven for all of eternity, which sounds a lot like hell to me, personally. <laughs> is that what, the, what, what, what God's good future is going to be like? No. Revelation says, no, the saints will reign upon the earth. Upon the earth. 
We miss this part. And then at the end of Revelation, Revelation 21, verses 2 through 3, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth. And what are we told? The dwelling of God is now with humanity. The dwelling of God's with humanity, with us. We aren't going anywhere. Heaven and God are coming here. That is an extraordinary thought, and it changes everything about how we live and how we see this thing and how we see ourselves and our part in God's story. The resurrection is God's down payment on this future that he has in store for this whole place. And what God has done in Jesus is this like sneak preview of what's going to be done for us. And what's going to be done for us then is what's going to be done for all of creation. All of creation is going to be set free from its bondage to decay. Can you imagine what a world would be like without the effects of sin and decay? Some of us wouldn't have a job right now because our job is based on checking human decay and brokenness. We would have to find another job if it wasn't for sin and decay. Some of us would have a very different job if it wasn't for sin and decay. Does anybody in here enjoy coffee? Coffee lovers? Yes. You haven't tasted anything yet. Just you wait until sin and bondage to decay are no longer affecting the flavor of your coffee. Anybody in here enjoy a beautiful sunset? You haven't seen anything yet. Just you wait until sin and bondage to decay are no longer affecting the view and the beauty, and you can finally see creation in all of its glory when your eyes can fully take it in. But I'm sure we've got some questions because, you know, we've been brought up to see all this thing, all this differently. So, okay, what about what do we read in, in Revelation 21 where it says that heaven and earth are going to pass away? What about that part? Okay, now hang on. Go back and read Paul when he says, if anybody's in Christ, they are a new creation. Do you know this? The old has gone and the new has come. When you turn to Jesus, God didn't burn you up in that moment and then this new you suddenly appeared somewhere else. The Bible uses this passing away, this coming and going language because the transformation that's in store for this, for this place is so remarkable and astonishing that the only way where we can even attempt to understand what it's going to be like is to use this kind of language. And even then, we're only walking around the edge of what God has in store for this world. But that's the language that we have to use to even just get close to it. Okay, but what about 2 Peter, where it says heaven and earth are being kept for fire? Well, go back and actually read the passage, and it's actually the wicked who are burned up, not creation. Okay, okay, but then there's the other part in 2 Peter, uh, roaring, the elements melting, the earth burned up. Okay, so what about that part? All right, remember a couple weeks ago when we said that the Bible is not a children's book, that there's lots of stuff that I would not read to my two-and-a-half-year-old because, oh boy, we'd have some weird conversations? This is not a children's book. And so, now, as adult readers who are looking at the whole story, and we're starting to get a sense of what that big story is, we are reading uh, the New Testament for echoes of the Old Testament because this whole thing connects. What's being echoed in 2 Peter is the story of God appearing at Mount Sinai. Have you, read, have you read that story about when God showed up and descended upon Mount Sinai to his, his people? It's pretty dramatic. Uh, roaring noise, fire, trumpets, smoke, the mountains trembling, everybody's totally freaked out. That's what's being echoed 
here in 2 Peter. The idea, the picture for us, is that when God returns to his creation, the effect of his arrival is going to be like the effect of his arrival when he descended upon Mount Sinai. That was in one place at one mountain with one group of people. What we're, what we're hearing about in the future is something for the whole cosmos. So we're, we're not hearing about cosmic annihilation where everything gets wiped out. We're, what we're hearing is that this whole thing, it's going to be like a cosmic Mount Sinai when the Creator God comes with all of His majesty and power, unfiltered. It'll be dramatic, powerful, amazing. Is everybody okay? I know that was a lot. You guys are doing good. Well done. Um, okay, let me, let me just pause there and see if anybody has a question. How about that? Questions? Anything I could uh, clear up? Or what about this? Or anything? You don't have to have a question. I just want to give you a second to come up for air because I know that was kind of a fire hose there. So, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trumpets? Good. Yeah. Great. Cleared that all up? Great. Yes, Michael. Is there any context around the, the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees disagreed on the resurrection? Mm. Yeah, yeah, okay, so, so yeah, there's the, there's the scribes, there's the Pharisees, there's Sadducees, yeah, there's different people that Jesus meets, and they've got different views on, on the resurrection. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's tough to, to get a complete picture of what these guys believed. We get, it kind of feels like um, listening in on a telephone conversation, and you're only hearing one end of the line. So with the little bits and pieces we have, um, it's like everybody had a different response to how to follow God in their time with the challenges that they were facing. And some people, just like today, uh, felt like, oh, here's what God wants us to do is to be super holy, and we have to be the holiest people of all, and um, we have to get, make sure everybody in our nation is super holy, and once that happens, then God will come back and he'll restore us. That describes, in a lot of ways, the Pharisees. They're like really good people. Let's make sure everybody's good, and if, if we could just all just have one day where we perfectly keep God's law— God's going to come back. Um, then there's people like the Sadducees, and these people uh, were kind of like corporate sellouts in a lot of ways. Um, they collaborated a lot with the larger government, and, and they, they benefited a lot from the system. These guys did not believe in the resurrection. Uh, they, they, their, their view was, this is what we got right here and right now, so we're, let's live that way. Um, yeah, and then, and then there were other people too. But um, yeah, they all had a different response uh, that either prepared them or did not prepare them for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, but that's about as much as, as I'd be able to tell you that would be helpful. But yeah, there were, there were some people who were open to the resurrection, but then actually there were some people who weren't at all open to the resurrection, like the Sadducees. Yeah, great question, Michael. Anybody else? Something I could clarify or? Yes. 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 And how to think about that from a biblical perspective, whether it's here for us to completely use, mm-hmm. however we would like, yes. it will be renewed later, mm-hmm. it's God's creation. Yes. Yes. Great question. Okay, so so overall if I'm hearing you right, you know, in the meantime, you know, kind of practicing for the world to come. How am I supposed to steward this place well? The resources we have, creation, you know, should I recycle? Like, lots of questions we have. Um, a, a really beautiful book that I'd recommend, it won the Pulitzer Prize. It's called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. It's a woman named Annie Dillard, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. She lived within, a, I think, a one to five mile radius for like a whole year or maybe longer. She didn't live anywhere else, and she just experienced that place. And she comes from a Christian background. 
and uh, she, she talks about her experience with creation. I share that because um, just because we're most, most supposed to be stewards of creation doesn't mean that, you know, in, in every single way that creation is going to answer back in a really positive, beautiful way. She has this one experience that totally freaks her out where um, there was this frog on the shore of the, 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 the river and she's looking at it and all of a sudden the frog just like, just like deflates like a balloon. And then this, she sees this thing swimming away in the water like, what, what was that? <laughs> and there was, this, there was this bug that she discovered that basically like bites you and injects you with this poison that like melts your insides and then sucks it clean and then, fly, and then, and, and then swims away. And she's like, um, God's good creation. What was that? What did I just see? Um, so uh, on the one hand, um, we hear about creation groaning in Romans 8. We hear about this groaning and we go, you know what? It doesn't, I'm not seeing the whole lion, lion and the lamb lying down together and creation at peace. And, you know, there's some gnarly things out there that you and I can see that we go, wow, this is some serious brokenness. So for us to enter into that and try to be a good steward there, we're going to experience some brokenness here and now. At the same time, um, a few weeks ago, we heard from, um, from, from about the, the Temescal Commons story, um, a, a Christian co-housing, well, not a Christian co-housing, but a co-housing community founded by some Christians here in, in this area. And I heard from Tom a lot of examples of the way that they built their place where with solar panels and um, ways that they have figured out to have a shared life together. Again and again, what I kept hearing was, you know, if you... If you really participate with this thing in the way that God meant it to be set up, um, there's some really cool things that could come out of that, including it's a cheaper way to live, you know, depending on solar power and, and looking to other people and, and, and sharing a life together. There's some really beautiful stuff that comes from that. So, um, yeah, so there's, there's, on the one hand, there's some really gnarly things happening out in creation because we're, we're, we still have to wait for God to renew and restore all things. In the meantime, there's also stuff for us to do. And then I guess the last thought, I would have is that you and I have to remember that whenever things are spoken to people in God's word, it's usually to a group of people, not to one person. And it feels really overwhelming to look at this whole world and go, how could I possibly do anything about this? You're, you're always going to feel overwhelmed if you read the Bible and read this, this creation mandate as if it's just up to you. Um, that's why I think the Temescal Commons story is really beautiful because it's, it's a shared thing. And we go, yeah, I also have to pay the j bills. I also have a job. I also have a family. I also have these things. And it's not for any one person to carry out all on their own. We should all have a, a, a piece of this. Um, that's why I love Paul's illustration of uh, the church as the body of Christ to say, yeah, somebody's a hand, somebody's a foot, somebody's an eye. Um, we should never attempt to take this on all by ourselves. We should look for some co-collaborators and co-conspirators. So those are a few things. I hope that's helpful. And then we're actually going to talk a little bit more. I've got a couple other thoughts prepared, but I hope that was helpful. Great question. Great question. Okay. Hopefully that was helpful to take a little break from that info overload from you guys. Um, if anything, the main thing to remember is this. The resurrection is God's yes. It's God's yes to Jesus, to humanity, and to all of creation. And our future is not going to heaven. Our future is heaven coming to earth. If, if nothing else, that, that, was, that was the essence of what I was uh, wanting to convey. So there you go. I'm like, Andy, why didn't you just say that? Um, but that's why we named this church Reunion. Reunion. That's the story of what God's up to in one word. Anything where there's brokenness and separation and things aren't where they're supposed to be to say, God, heaven and earth coming together and you making all things new. That's what we're looking forward to.
So if that's the case, our part in all of this, what's our part in all of this? Our part is to practice resurrection, practice resurrection. And I, I'm borrowing this phrase from Eugene Peterson's book. Uh, it's a, his book title. I think it's just a really helpful way to describe our part in God's story. Practice resurrection. The resurrection has changed everything, but we got to practice it. We, we, don't, we don't have it all figured out yet. There's going to be some trial and error. We're going to be students of this thing. We're going to be learning a whole new way of life. If you're practicing, that means you don't have to be an expert. That, that doesn't mean you have to have it all figured out. I'm practicing. I'm trying this out. We're practicing for the future. You picture this stage and a play being performed on this stage, and there's a dress rehearsal. In a lot of ways, how we're living right now is, okay, God, I'm, trying to, I'm living as if my life's a dress rehearsal for what's to come. Uh, the, the, the main thing. I'm, I'm trying this out. Our future, uh, where, where this is all going, it affects our present. So we practice resurrection. But how do we do that? For one thing, we got to stop singing songs and talking about escaping this place or escaping our bodies. Just because something is a hymn does not mean it's scripture. There are some really bad hymns out there that, that sing a lot of stuff that's just flat out not true. Okay? So we are not going to heaven. Heaven's coming to us. The earth is good. Our bodies are good. God's committed to this place. He's committed to me and you. He's coming here. He's made the earth and our bodies to be temples of his holy presence. So let's stop treating them. Let's stop treating our bodies and let's stop treating this place like it's garbage. Let's stop singing and talking as if we're just going to jettison this place someday when all fly away. Just stop it. Knock it off. Don't do it. Instead, let's be people who actually have good news for the brokenness that we see all around us. Because God's plan for broken people and broken places is not to junk it. His plan is to redeem it. So let's sing about that. Let's live and talk like that. What else does it mean to practice resurrection? It means that we're not just sitting around waiting for God to arrive. We're not just like at some bus stop or, or something waiting for, for the bus to get here. Our following Jesus is meant to be lived out by people keeping. The oppressed, the poor, the homeless, the marginalized, the lonely. Christians are meant to keep people. And there's plenty of embarrassing things in our Christian family heritage that we need to own up for. We, you don't need to pretend like that stuff's not there. But there's also tons of stuff to be proud of that doesn't get a lot, whole lot of airplay. And I think we should, you know, do, give, give this stuff more airplay. If you want to be inspired, if you want to see how other people have figured out how to practice resurrection in their time, get a copy of 131 Christians that everyone should know. For one thing, you're going to learn about William Wilberforce. In the late 1700s, when Wilberforce was a teenager, English traders would raid the African coast and they would capture somewhere between 35,000 and 50,000 Africans every year. And it was brutal, it was dehumanizing, it was violent, and they'd ship them across the Atlantic and they'd sell them into slavery. Slavery was such an essential part of the economy that society literally depended on it. People felt like it would be treason to even talk about trying to remove slavery from culture because it was everything. They felt like the whole thing would collapse if we removed this thing. Only a handful of people could imagine a world and a society without slavery. And one person in that handful was William Wilberforce. Why? Because his imagination, his imagination was shaped by God's story. He knew God's character. Because of Jesus, he began to see his life's purpose, which was to abolish the slave trade. And this is what he wrote. So enormous, so dreadful, so ir irremediable, 
Did the, did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition? Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I'd effected its abolition. So he managed to win election to English Parliament in 1780, and he and his friends managed to introduce 12 resolutions against the slave trade. 12. But again and again, and I'm sure you're not surprised, there were powerful people with vested interest in keeping things exactly the way that they were, and so he was blocked again and again by just people being incredibly clever and maneuvering around the different things that he was proposing. Other bills introduced by Wilberforce were defeated in 1791, 1792, 1793, 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, and 1805. Would you have given up at a certain point? Would you have been discouraged and gone, you know what, I tried, okay? I think before God and all my friends, hello, I tried. The opposition became so fierce because it became clear that Wilberforce was not going to give up. And so pro-slavery forces started to target him. Um, and one friend feared that one day he was going to read uh, in Wilberforce's obituary that he had either been carbonated, which uh, is broiled, by Indian planters, or barbecued by African merchants, or eaten by Guinea captains. People who were deeply invested in things being exactly the way they were. But his anti-slavery efforts succeeded 27 years later. 27 years later. In 1807, the slave trade in the English Empire, in the British Empire, was completely abolished. And then Wilberforce worked to ensure that the anti-slavery laws were actually enforced and until slavery in every part of the British Empire was completely eradicated. There was a lot of cleanup work to do just because the, the, you know, the bill had been signed. And Wilberforce's health kept him from leading the final charge, but three days before he died, he heard about the, the final passage of the Emancipation Bill. So he got to hear some good news. All of this from somebody who understood that the resurrected Jesus cares about people who are made in his image. He didn't look at the overwhelming level of brokenness around him and just go, what could I possibly do? This is too much for me. I guess I'll just wait for Jesus to return and set things right. No. He had work to do on this side of Jesus' return. And he found partners for his cause because he knew he couldn't do it by himself. And he didn't give up until his African brothers and sisters were finally free. And that's just one story of someone from your family heritage that you can be really, 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 really proud of. So get the book and see what God will inspire you to do. Just like Wilberforce, you and I live in this tension where a resurrection has happened in the middle of a broken world, right in the middle of it. And in a lot of ways, it doesn't seem like much has changed everywhere we look, but there's good work for you and I to do. Resurrection work with the time that God's given us to do, um, to practice resurrection, one of the things for us to do is to live as if your work carries on into God's good future. Some of us are in a job that we love. Some of us are in a job that is super boring and we hate it and we're looking for something else. Some of us would love to have a job. But uh, there's things that we do that we love to do, uh, working with our hands or our mind or with people. What if we lived as if our work would carry on into God's good future? If you and I were to take sin out of the Bible, the Bible would be a pamphlet. There would be two chapters at the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, and then two chapters at the end, Revelation 21 and 22. But if you place the beginning and the end together, you'd see the story starts with a garden, 
and it ends with a city. And what's a city? It's a bunch of well-organized gardens. The biblical story ends in a garden city and the peoples of the earth, it says, bring their glory into that city. People like you and me, we have something to bring into this garden city that God is creating. Uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, there's this really great moment where Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And, and you and I have to hear that for, for our jobs, because there are things that you and I love to do. There are things that when we do them, we just get lost in them. We lose all track of time. Uh, my friend Esther loves to work in the culinary arts, and I'm sure uh, there's moments where you just forget where you are, what time it is, because you were lost in it, because you loved it. And we all have things like that. Somebody might say, I love to work in my carpentry shop. I love to make things out of wood. I love to walk into Home Depot and just, just smell that potential on the, on the shelves there, all the things I can make. Or somebody would say, I just wrote this song, or I just painted this. Or somebody would say, there's nothing more satisfying than getting to the end of this complicated, really messy project at work, but then weeks later, you can look back on it and you could see you, you, you entered into that chaos and you brought order out of that chaos, and now things are kind of functioning in the way they're supposed to, and of course that's satisfying for you. Some of us are just like, I just love to get my hands in the dirt. I have re-landscaped my backyard three times this year already, and I just love it. I love that green line I get around my shoes when I mow the lawn. Of course you do. Some of us would say, I love it when I'm in a conversation with somebody else and I just feel like they were this closed off person, but I'm drawing them out and they're able to be themselves and, they, and they, they feel like they can be safe. Or I love when I make a connection with a kid and they just feel like they can trust me and play and we're laughing and we're having a blast. Of course, of course, of course, for all of those things. God created you for that. That's why you love it. And it's going on into God's good future. That's why you love it. But if we don't know our story and we don't know that these things continue on into God's good future, it makes it really hard to enjoy our lives. It makes it really hard to enjoy the things that we love because some part of us feels like, well, this isn't really going to last, so I guess I'll just enjoy it right now. But what if we saw that this thing went on into eternity? How, maybe we would take it a, that much more seriously to go, yeah, I want to get really, really good at this because I know I, I'm going to be doing this forever. None of these gifts are lost in God's good future. None of it's in vain, 1 Corinthians says. It matters to God. So let's do things as if we're people who are formed in the character of God and if we can bring those things into the city of God. All right, I want you to be able to come up for air again. Let's group up and talk about this with two or three people around us. Um, what is something that you love to do that you hope can find expression in the new heavens and the new earth? Let's group up with maybe two or three other people and, and talk about that. Ready? Go. All right. Good stuff, you guys. Um, I want to give you one final, one final image of practicing resurrection. All right. Think about the last time that you were at the movies. Uh, a lot of good movies already come out this summer, but think about the last time you were at the movies. Uh, who here would say that you enjoy the sneak previews almost as, in, as much as you enjoy the movie that you came to see? Who's like this? You're the, you're the teaser trailer people. You're like, I am not missing that. No way, because I, I want to see what's coming. Okay, so um, trailers are tasters. They're short film versions of the soon-to-be-released movie. They usually include the best special effects or the funniest scenes or the most romantic moments. Um, and now at the end of the, each trailer, 
as soon as, it, as it's done playing, what, what then happens in the theater? People turn to each other. And what are they saying? Oh, I want to see that. I want to see that. This is, this is a really great metaphor for the church. If, if a gathering of Jesus followers are doing their job well, people are going to see what they're doing and say, I want to see that. I, I want to see the world that those people come from. How, how did they get to be that way? Because as a sneak preview, we, you and I are like a teaser trailer for God's good future, where he's taking this thing. We have good news for broken people in broken places. Because our gospel is about life. More than 40 times in John's gospel, Jesus says, what does God want from you? God wants you to open your hands and receive his gift of eternal life. He says, I've come to bring you life, that you'd have it to the full, more abundantly than you'd ever know. Is this how we come across to other people? When, when, when people bump into us, when they meet Christians, they immediately think, oh yeah, those people, they bring life. If not, we got a problem. What's your, what's your vision of the life of God? What's your vision of what it means to share your faith with other people? What if you and I are not here to be the morality police of the universe? What if you and I are here to offer life to other people? What if the mark of you and I being holy is that people feel more alive after being with us? Would you enjoy living like that instead of the morality police of the universe? Wouldn't that be a better way to live? Aren't you tired, like, feeling like you're supposed to be correcting people all the time, judging them, evaluating them? Aren't you tired of that? Wouldn't it be great to not see people as targets for our criticism, but instead somebody that I can bring life to, even if it's just like a 30-second interaction at CVS or a longer interaction with somebody we work with or live with? What if we were like those pink ice cream taster spoons at Baskin-Robbins? And we've got some taster spoons uh, that are going to be coming down the aisle for you, and everybody can get one in their hand, and you can just look at it and imagine whatever flavor you would get with your taster spoon. Uh, so first of all, you're at Baskin-Robbins, you're at 31 flavors. What flavor are you going to sample? Some thoughts? What are you going to get? Pralines and cream? Yes, yes. It's delicious, but also I feel like an 80-year-old man whenever I order it. But it is so good. Yes. What else? Birthday cake. Birthday cake. Hey-oh. Okay. What else? Coffee cake. Anything else? What are you going to get? What are you going to get? Cheesecake. Peanut butter. Cheesecake. So good. Chocolate chip. Mint. Mm-hmm. Chocolate. Yeah, I'm with you. Just, choc just, just lots of chocolate. Different variations of it. All just rah, together. Yes. Yes. All right, look at your pink taster spoon. You and I live between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. That's, that's where we are in God's story. And as we live between those times, God is calling you and I to be like these pink taster spoons. We are a holy foretaste of the ice cream to come, so to speak. We are people whose lives give a holy foretaste of God's good future, what's to come. And this, this changes how you and I interact with people on an everyday basis. When you wake up tomorrow morning, let me tell you about your day. I already know. All day, God is going to bring people across your path who need the life of God. All day, he's going to do that. Your two-year-old, your roommate, the woman ringing up your CVS purchase, the security guard at the BART station, all day. Who's God going to bring across your path? 
And how are you going to bring them life? How are you going to contribute to their flourishing? How could they become more alive because they were in your presence, even if it was just for 30 seconds? What's awesome about this is that every day then is different. Every day is like this adventure. There are endless possibilities for how you can bring life to people. Isn't this a better way to live? Paul says we're meant to be shining like stars, holding out the promise of life to other people. And then an early church father, Irenaeus, said the glory of God is a human being fully alive. So my brothers and sisters, may we live fully alive. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure you want this, but some of us are facing a situation or a relationship where there's some serious brokenness, a person or a place, and it's hard to know what to do or what to say in those situations. We're, we're feeling some tension. And here's how we want to conclude our time together. The, the Holy Spirit is available to you and I to help us navigate that tension where we're like, God, how would I even, how would I even address this? How would I even meet this brokenness? I want to invite up the worship team and the, and the prayer team. Um, we're going to sing. And as we do, I would like to invite all of you up to receive anointing oil on your, on your forehead. Now, you can opt out of this. You don't have to do this. But let me just tell you what this means, and, and maybe you'll want this. Throughout the history of God's people, um, oil has been a symbol for God's Holy Spirit. It's a way for us to say, God, this situation I'm facing where you're calling me to address some real brokenness, God, I can't do this without you. I, I need your wisdom. I need your creativity. I need your hope. I need to see things from your eyes. Help me, God, to bring life to broken people and broken places. But as I do it, Lord, let me know that you're with me. Let me know that you're working in and through me, that it's not just me, that you're with me. So. If, uh, if that sounds good to you and you have a situation that comes to mind, before you, before you would leave this place, just receive this symbol of God's presence uh, in you and with you so that you go into your week with tremendous hope, going, yeah, the tomb is empty and God's Spirit is available to be in me and with me in these, in these places. Um, and then if there's also a situation where you'd appreciate maybe a little more like prayer and you want to share that with uh, Ernestine or Teddy, you can let them know, hey, here's, after you anoint me, also just here's the situation I'm facing and I would just appreciate taking a moment just to pray. And they'd love to pray for you about that too, okay? So um, as we sing, you can come up and receive anointing oil and head back to your seat and we'll start with the first row, okay? All right, let's sing.